the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend producing, Dave King engineering in Portland, and Pedro Bartes in Seattle. Glad to have you with us. Today we'll hear from Father Dwight Longenecker. He's the author of Mystery of the Magi, The Quest to Identify the Three Wise Men. And in the Portland area, we'll hear once again from Paul Willie. The final weekend of the Portland Singing Christmas Tree is coming up. We'll give you an opportunity to learn all the important details. That's for the Portland-only segment of today's program from 5.30 on. But first, some of the day's headlines. Israel and Hamas have extended their truce agreement to include an additional two days with a plan to exchange more Israeli hostages and Palestinian prisoners during that time. So far, only one American has been released, and when asked, there hasn't been a clear answer as to whether or not the expectation is more Americans will be released as well over these next two days. Gutter, which has helped mediate negotiations between the two sides, announced the truce extension on Monday via a foreign ministry spokesperson. An official for Hamas, the terrorist group that has uh, controlled the Gaza Strip since 2007, told Reuters that an agreement has been reached with the help of Gutter and Egypt to extend the temporary humanitarian truce by two more days with the same conditions as in the previous truce, end quote. Well, as part of that agreement, Hamas will release 10 hostages on Tuesday, 10 more on Wednesday. Meanwhile, Israel will release 30 prisoners each day, according to the Times of Israel. Well, Hamas, as you recall, on the 7th of October, launched a large-scale surprise attack on southern Israel from the Gaza Strip, killing an estimated uh, 1,200 people, including 31 Americans, and taking about 240 hostages. When asked earlier in the day how many American citizens are still missing, and there has not been proof of life, there are about eight or nine. There was no definitive hard number given. Well, in response, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu declared war after the October 7th event. Israel Defense Forces launched retaliatory airstrikes and a ground invasion in Gaza to eradicate Hamas and to free the hostages. According to the Hamas-run Gaza Health Ministry, over 13,000 Palestinians have been killed since the beginning of the war. That number has been called into question, although the president apologized earlier in the uh, the week uh, for questioning Hamas uh, reliability. Uh, nonetheless, Gaza death figures don't distinguish between combatants and civilians. Well, the Israeli strikes have taken out multiple senior Hamas officials, prompted the militant uh, wing of the group to retreat southward. According to the Jerusalem Post, Hamas and Israel agreed to an initial four-day truce. That was last week. Under the terms of that truce, the Islamic terror organization agreed to release 50 hostages, while Israel would agree to release 150 Palestinian prisoners. The agreement also allowed for trucks filled with humanitarian supplies to enter Gaza to help Palestinian civilians impacted by the fighting. The exchange occurred over five, uh, rather four days, with Hamas releasing 13 Israelis, while Israel released 39 prisoners last Friday. Hamas also freed 10 
Uh, Thai nationals and one Filipino had been taken hostage as part of the separate agreement taking place on the Gaza Strip's border with Egypt. Released uh, uh, hostages were handed over to the Red Cross first and then back to Israel. And on Saturday evening, following the postponed uh, postponement, rather, driven by the militant wing of Hamas, another 13 Israeli hostages and four Thai nationals were freed, while 39 Palestinian prisoners were released. One of the released Palestinians was... Uh, a woman accused of attempted murder who was jailed in 2015 after her car exploded at a checkpoint, disfiguring her and seriously wounding an Israeli police officer. Hamas freed 17 hostages on Sunday, among them including a four-year-old American girl named Abigail Eden, who had um, reportedly witnessed Hamas murder her parents on the 7th of October. According to Turkish news outlet, um, um, Anadolu uh, Agency, 150 trucks with humanitarian aid and fuel have been able to enter Gaza over the weekend, and that has continued. Well, the Israeli military said Monday evening the newly released hostages were handed over to the Red Cross in Gaza and were on their way to Israel. The identities of the 11 additional hostages who were kidnapped by Hamas and returned on Monday have been uh, released. The Israeli military said on Monday evening, that 11 hostages were handed over to the Red Cross in Gaza and were on their way to Israeli territory, marking the start of the fourth swap under the original truce. IDF Special Forces and ISA forces accompanied the hostages into Israeli territory. The freed hostages uh, underwent an initial medical assessment of their health, and the forces will accompany them until they are reunited with their families, those who have remaining living family members. In some cases, family members uh, remain in a custody of Hamas and other terror organizations. Well, the latest release comes as Israel and Hamas have agreed to extend their ceasefire for two more days, as I mentioned, according to um, the Gatori uh, government. So far, Hamas has released 58 hostages, including 39 Israelis during the current truce, while Israel has released 117 Palestinian prisoners. Well, the prime minister of Israel released footage of the kidnapped Haran family back in their uh, home country after being held in Gaza by Hamas terrorists. Well, in the three days since Israel and Hamas declared that truce, 58 hostages having been released, details are beginning to emerge about their nearly two months of captivity inside Gaza. And while information about the conditions have been tightly controlled, family members of the victims have begun sharing details about their loved ones' experiences. Most of the freed hostages, though, understandably shaken, appear to be in stable condition. One woman said her cousin and aunt uh, were fed irregularly, having eaten mainly rice and bread, lost about 15 pounds in just 50 days. Her family members said that they had um, slept on uh, rows of chairs pushed together in a room that looked like a reception area and had to wait hours before going to the bathroom. Another uh, grandchild of an 85-year-old released hostage said her grandmother had also lost weight. She said her grandmother was taken captive, convinced that her family members were dead, only to emerge to the news that they had all survived. 18 foreign nationals, mostly Thais, have also been released. The experience of another captive, 85-year-old, who was released before the current ceasefire, illuminated a more nuanced picture. She said captives were treated well, received medical care, including medication. The guards kept conditions clean, she said. Hostages were uh, given food, uh, one meal a day of cheese and cucumber and pita, adding that her uh, captors ate the same. Uh, the recently freed hostages also agreed to have uh, been held underground. One uh, twenty, uh, rather 72-year-old who was freed on Friday said 
His aunt had to adjust to the sunlight because she had been in darkness for weeks. Doctors have warned of the steep psychological toll of captivity. Israel has made counseling and other support available to those who have been released. Many of the freed hostages appear to be in good physical condition, able to walk and speak normally, but at least two needed more serious medical care. One hostage released Sunday, 84-year-old Alma Abraham. She was rushed to Israel's hospital, a medical center in the southern city of Beersheba, in life-threatening condition. The hospital's director said she had a pre-existing condition that had not been treated properly in captivity. Another young female hostage was on crutches on a video Hamas released on Saturday. Well, the truce comes less than two months after Hamas' bloody cross-border attack on Israel that killed 1,200 and left hundreds of others injured. We're going to take a break here in just a moment, but we'll continue to work our way through some of the headlines from the last several days. And again, coming up in the second hour, Father Dwight Longenecker, his book, Mystery of the Magi. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're working our way through some of the news stories of the last several days, given this holiday weekend. Well, the Biden administration is quietly discussing a potentially far-reaching settlement with the environmental groups that advocate for tearing down four hydroelectric dams in Washington to protect salmon. Well, federal attorneys representing the government said it had developed a package of actions and commitments and agreed to pause litigation with environmental activist plaintiffs in the case. Well, in the filings jointly submitted by the federal government and eco groups, the parties said that they could uh, request a multi-year pause on the litigation to allow for the implementation of the package as soon as the 15th of December this year. However, the filing failed to detail exactly what conditions were included in that secretive package developed. The group involved in the case have vehemently argued in favor of breaching the four federally managed dams with declining salmon populations in the Lower Snake River, which winds through Idaho and southwestern Washington before feeding into the Columbia and then into the Pacific Ocean. An internal U.S. Customs and Border Protection memo obtained by the Heritage Foundation's Oversight Project prohibits agents from using he, him, she, her pronouns when initially interacting with members of the public. Do not use he, him, she, her pronouns until you have more information about or provided by the individual, reads the memo obtained by the Heritage via Freedom of Information Act. Oversight Project Director Mike Howell said that in an interview Tuesday that the members of the public who Border Patrol agents most often interact with are migrants in the country illegally. Border Patrol deals with more illegal aliens than any entity in the federal government. This forced language guidance is designed to coddle those who come into the country who may be confused by the confusion that the uh, agents are now being told to implement. U.S. Representative Bill Johnson, a Republican out of Ohio, announced Tuesday that he's retiring from Congress to accept an offer to become president of Youngstown State University. Johnson, who was first elected to the U.S. House in 2010, will continue in his role as a lawmaker for several more months before starting as president of the university in March. After much thought and prayerful deliberation, I have accepted the offer to lead Youngstown State University and will not be seeking an eighth term in Congress. This was an extremely difficult decision, he went on to say. He wrote on X, Johnson, his 69, will succeed former Ohio State University football head coach Jim Tressel, who left as Youngstown president in February. 
As he aims to be the last challenger standing against former President Donald Trump in the race for the 2024 Republican presidential nomination, Chris Christie's turning up the volume on two other rivals. Christie's amplifying criticism of Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and former U.N. Ambassador and former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley for not vigorously targeting Trump, who remains the faraway frontrunner for the GOP nomination as he makes his third straight White House run. And Christie, a very vocal Republican critic of Trump, touted that the one thing people say about me is I'm not. And I suppose he meant in favor of Trump. Well, DeSantis and Haley are currently battling for second place in the latest national surveys in the 2024 Republican race and in the most recent surveys in Iowa, whose caucuses lead off the GOP nominating calendar. As Christie runs a second time for the White House, he's once again concentrating most of his time and resources on New Hampshire, which holds the first primary in the Republican schedule and votes second after Iowa. Christie is currently in third place in New Hampshire polls, far behind Trump and slightly trailing Haley. Christie placed all his chips in his campaign for president eight years ago in the Granite State. However, his campaign crashed and burned after a disappointing and distant sixth place finish in New Hampshire, far behind Trump, who crushed the competition in the primary, boosting him toward the nomination and eventually the White House. Many young Americans are choosing to avoid the potential minefield of political discussions and tense debates among relatives by ditching family gatherings, according to a new poll. That's Thanksgiving, Christmas, and everything in between. A new political avoidance survey of over 2,000 Americans conducted by the Harris Poll reveals that 51% of Gen Z opts to skip family gatherings, while 4 in 10 Gen Z and millennials, 38%, admit to dreading such uh, gatherings due to the looming specter of political debates. A stark contrast to the 20% of Gen D, Gen Z, X rather, and boomers who share the same sentiment. Too bad all of our family gatherings have been reduced to political argument. A popular meme depicts salvos of uh, Israel's Iron Dome uh, interceptors on their way to counter scores of Hamas rockets over a skyline. Under Israel's interceptors, one caption reads, My tax dollars. Under the Hamas rockets, another caption reads, Somehow, also my tax dollars. Well, this might be humorous if it didn't capture a tragic truth as Israel fights to dismantle Hamas terrorists in Gaza following their barbaric October 7th attacks. President Biden finds himself funding both sides of the war. Backed by overwhelming congressional support, the U.S. has strongly invested in Iron Dome and other security cooperation with Israel over many administrations. But the Biden administration, however, they decided to reverse President Donald Trump's cuts to taxpayer-funded assistance to the Palestinians and resume the risky practice of annually sending hundreds of millions in aid, including to the Hamas-controlled Gaza Strip, where aid is at danger of diversion. The State Department internally warned the incoming Biden administration about the high risk that Hamas could potentially derive indirect, unintentional benefit from U.S. assistance to Gaza. But the president resumed aid to Gaza anyway. It was reported on Friday that a Michigan businessman allegedly offered a Democrat candidate for the Michigan Senate $20 million to drop his current candidacy and run against House Representative Rashida Tlaib, the Democrat from Michigan, instead. The candidate, Hill Harper, reportedly declined the offer. I would be willing to uh, to take that on, just saying $20 million. Pope Francis hosted a group of transgender women 
reading men, many of whom are sex workers or migrants from Latin America to a Vatican luncheon for the Catholic Church's World Day of the Poor last week. The Pontiff and the transgender women have formed a close relationship since the Pope came to their aid during the COVID-19 pandemic when they were unable to work. Well, now they meet monthly for VIP visits with the Pope and receive medicine, money and shampoo any day according to the Associated Press. Now, one would hope, as the Pope, that this would be a gospel outreach. Some 1,200 people who are impoverished or homeless also attended the luncheon inside the Papal Audience Hall for a full meal and dessert. The invitation to the transgender women comes as the Vatican released a controversial document earlier this month affirming that individuals suffering from gender identity disorders or dysphoria are allowed to be baptized or be named as godparents under specific circumstances in the Catholic Church. Taxpayers are paying for transgender inmates in U.S. prisons to transition to another gender if a medical assessment deems it necessary, in quotes, according to a June Federal Bureau of Prisons, or BOP, memo. The memo, discovered through a Freedom of Information Act uh, request, details the immediate implementation of a new pathway for inmates to undergo invasive surgery to transition to their desired gender. The last time clinical guidance from the Bureau of Prisons was released was in 2016. Lawsuits have already been underway for transgender inmates seeking sex reassignment surgery. A Minnesota transgender inmate is being moved to a women's prison and will receive a procedure, the name of which I won't mention, as well as $495,000 to settle a discrimination lawsuit against the State Department of Corrections, according to a June ruling. Your tax dollars at work. One sector of the often overlooked northern border saw a 550 percent increase in migrant apprehensions last fiscal year. The latest statistics highlighting the increase in numbers that border officials are seeing. We're talking about the northern border. Swanton Sector Chief Patrol uh, Agent Robert Garcia said this week that agents have seen 550 percent increase in apprehensions with 6,925 apprehensions between October of last year and the end of September. He also said the migrants were arriving from 79 different countries, with the top five countries from which migrants originated being Mexico, India, Venezuela, Haiti, and Romania. And again, we're talking about the northern border. The sector, which covers the borders of New York, New Hampshire, and Vermont with Canada, saw just over 1,000 Border Patrol apprehensions in all of fiscal year 2022 and 365 the year before. It's part of a border, a rather a broader surge in migration at the northern and southern borders, although the numbers at the southern border vastly eclipse those seen at the northern border. Well, this November marks the 60-year anniversary of the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. I remember precisely where I was when the announcement was made. And one author says he's surprised more people aren't talking about another open motorcade incident that occurred about a year earlier. Lee Harvey Oswald shot and killed Kennedy during an open motorcade ride through Dealey Plaza in Dallas on the 22nd of November, 1963, leaving the country in shock and mourning. At least we're told that uh, he was responsible. Well, according to author Stephen F. Knott, a professor of national security affairs at the United States Naval War College, Kennedy may have also been in danger in the fall of 1962. Knott discovered evidence in the archives of the John F. Kennedy Library in Boston, where he once worked. In his research, Knott found that during an open vehicle presidential motorcade in Springfield, Illinois, in October of 1962, a witness saw a rifle pointed at JFK from 
a second-story downtown building. The only thing new that I learned, he says, was that there had been a previous near-miss, let's say almost a year earlier, at the height of the Cuban Missile Crisis, which would have been a disaster, not uh, said in an interview. President Kennedy visited Springfield, Illinois, to lay a wreath at the tomb of of Abraham Lincoln and then to deliver a political speech. And while he was parading in an open car through downtown Springfield, a police officer spotted a rifle in a, with a scope on it emerged from a nearby building under which Kennedy's limousine was passing. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Uh, we're uh, covering some of the news from the last several days since we haven't uh, done so in the last several days, given the holiday weekend. And we'll continue in just a few moments as well. Also want to remind you coming up in our second hour, the mystery of the Magi, the quest to identify the three wise men. Uh, Father Dwight Longenecker will be the guest. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You are listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to hear, glad to be here. This is what I'm trying to say. Coming up in our five o'clock hour, Father Dwight Longenecker, Mystery of the Magi, the quest to identify the three wise men. And for those of you in uh, Portland, at 530, a conversation with Paul Willie. He and I had a conversation a week ago, but uh, given the fact that the Portland Singing Christmas Tree has one weekend left, we're going to reprise that conversation. That's coming up in the last half of uh, the five o'clock hour in Portland. Well, the Wisconsin Museum is facing backlash after its annual Christmas tree festival included a Christmas tree from the Satanic Temple, National Railroad Museum of um, Ashwabenen, or something very like that, featured 66 trees on display. The tree from the Satanic Temple of Wisconsin invoked the ire of a Republican congressman who called it a cultural propaganda and offensive. Conservatives are often accused of launching a culture war or focusing or fixating on cultural issues. But here is a perfect example of how that's not what's happening. What's happening is we're just trying to defend basic traditions or defend children in the midst of these basic traditions from the encroachment of another ideology. Representative Mike Gallagher from Wisconsin said on Sunday morning futures, well, the tree belonging to the satanic temple and why they would want a Christmas tree and would permit it to have one, given that it would be uh, in opposition, was adorned with red lights, beads, pentagrams, and various ornaments with one reading, Hail Santa, an apparent uh, play on the phrase, Hail Satan. Senator Tom Cotton, a Republican out of Arkansas, said the Biden administration needs to be tougher on Iran and that a massive retaliation is needed to end attacks on U.S. assets. There have been more than 70 attacks thus far. He says since Joe Biden took office, Iran has attacked American positions in the Middle East, I think now over 150 times in this most recent incursion in uh, in Israel-Hamas conflict, it's been at over 70. Uh, the Republican senator added that the United States has only hit back a few times and not at targets he would order were he commander-in-chief. The Senate Armed Services and Senate Intelligence Committee members said he would suggest targeting Iranians operating in Iraq and in Syria. Many of the newly released convicted Palestinian terrorists who are part of a swap that secured the freedom of some Israeli and foreign hostages held by the terrorist movement's Hamas could receive U.S. funds via the Palestinian Authority. An expert on the matter claims Itmar Marcus, director of the Palestinian Media Watch, an Israeli-based organization researching Palestinian society, said the American and European funding boosts the Palestinian Authority budget by $600 million. 
The Palestinian Authority pays the salaries of imprisoned terrorists and the family members of the martyrs, and the amount comes to $300 million a year. They're getting twice that. He continued, there is no doubt that the Palestinian Authority could not pay this funding without the boost of funding from the Americans and Europeans. The Americans and Europeans are absolutely facilitating the payment. It is willful blindness, end quote. He noted that every single terrorist gets a salary from the Palestinian Authority once they are imprisoned. According to Palestinian law, Marcus said a prisoner who serves more than five years in prison receives a monthly salary for life presumably given directly to family members. Veteran suicide has been has seen rather an 11.6 percent spike between 2020 and 2021, totaling 6,392 suicides in 2021 alone. According to the Department of Veterans Affairs, veteran suicide report was released this month. Cole Lyle, U.S. Marine Corps veteran and executive director of Mission Roll Call, spoke about the new report explaining why veteran suicide is an increasing issue, as well as what the Department of Veterans Affairs can do to prevent veterans from taking their own lives. It's a disturbing trend that after going down for two years, we saw a spike. After COVID and the Afghanistan withdrawal, it's probably not surprising that we saw an increase in veterans' suicides. The IRS is postponing a middle-class tax hike. Perhaps they didn't want to um, rain on our Thanksgiving Day parade, or perhaps the folks at Joe Biden's Internal Revenue Service took a look at their boss's polling numbers and figured they ought to uh, not add fuel to the presidential bonfire. Well, in any case, the Wall Street Journal reports the most hated agency on the planet has pushed back the implementation of the $600 reporting threshold for payments received via online platforms such as Venmo, eBay, and Airbnb. Recall that this uh, new IRS revenue stream was crammed into the ill-conceived and misleading named American Rescue Plan. Recall, too, that the new $600 threshold for annual Form 1099-K reporting of transactions had originally been $20,000. Well, it was a mess. As the journal rightly notes, the $600 threshold would ensnare millions of Americans who occasionally use online platforms to sell household items or repay friends for a dinner. Cash wedding gifts received through peer-to-peer platforms might get reported, too. Well, apparently, Democrats uh, think the real reason we're nearly $34 trillion in debt is because folks who moonlight as Lyft drivers or who uh, verbo their cabin uh, via during the summer months are dodging their taxes. Oddly enough, Hunter Biden could not be reached for comment. Well, in a bit of good news, CNBC has announced that it will be shuttering its climate desk That's right. No more full time entity at the cable news outlet endlessly churning out climate change, doom and gloom uh, prognostications that strangely never seem to materialize. According to the media outlet, the reason for the decision is cost cutting, which is a strange thing to say in light of the pending end of the world. Of course, the reality is the climate cult is little to uh, to do with the climate and more to do with attacking capitalism and favor of socialism. It turns out that alarmist agenda pushing isn't paying the bills. Well, speaking of the climate cult and capitalism, those at the top 1% of wealth also happen to be the biggest emitters of carbon emissions. According to a report from the left-leaning Oxfam, the richest 1% of the world's population produced as much carbon pollution in 2019 as the 5 billion people who made up uh, the poorest two-thirds of humanity. Well, that should surprise no one since the most economically advanced nations have become so by developing efficient energy production made possible only by fossil fuels. 
Indeed, without fossil fuels, very few would be wealthy, and the vast majority of the world's population will be relegated to live in dire poverty. And while there are some wealthy elite hypocrites uh, who deserve castigation for their outsized carbon footprint as they jet around the globe decrying the very fossil fuels that made their wealth possible, it wasn't for wealthy, if it wasn't for wealthy entrepreneurs, we would uh, all be in a much worse condition. One of America's largest trucking companies, Covenant Transport, has been hit with a $700,000 fine. Well, why is the Biden administration going after the faith-based company headquartered in Chattanooga, Tennessee? Well, according to the federal government, it's due to Covenant Transport having supposedly engaged in unfair hiring practices. Evidently, the trucking company attentively follows the 1965 Immigration and Nationality Act, which requires employers to preferentially hire American citizens over non-citizens. Furthermore, under the 1986 addition to the INA, employers are required to retain employment eligibility verification for every employee on their payroll. Covenant Transport required uh, all non-U.S. citizen employees to regularly provide updated permanent residential cards or other official U.S. government documentations of immigration status in order to maintain their employment. The Biden administration is calling foul, calling it unfair discrimination when it's really due diligence to the rule of law. Well, the annual Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade proceeded as, well, normal through downtown Manhattan, but this year featured the promotion of the LGBTQ agenda. Well, despite the objections of thousands and a petition that garnered nearly 40,000 signatures calling on the parade to remove this uh, nonsense, uh, no changes of the agenda were made. The petition raised by One Million Moms states, The non-binary and transgender extravaganza on display this Thanksgiving will be brought to you by Macy's, during their annually sponsored Thanksgiving Day Parade. Unless they are forewarned about it, this year's holiday parade will potentially expose tens of millions of viewers at home to the LGBTQ agenda. And while this is not the first year a self-described non-binary performer will be featured, the increased celebration of this gender-bending is alarming. So maybe folks shouldn't be tuning in to watch the parade this year. It would certainly save them and their children from having to view sexual Uh, content on Thanksgiving Day. Well, the parade has come and gone. House Republicans have subpoenaed their uh, prosecutor in the Hunter Biden investigation. uh, investigation. Three of the trans people eulogized by the Biden administration died attacking innocent people, according to the Federalist. And a woke museum claims a notorious Roman emperor was transgender and will use female pronouns to make reference to him, her, whatever, in the future, settled science, a mask study published by NIH suggests that N95 masks may expose wearers to dangerous levels of toxic compounds linked to seizures and cancer. And a federal judge says Pennsylvania's mail in ballots should still count even if they're dated incorrectly. A federal appeals court struck a Maryland handgun rule, and Sam Altman will return to OpenAI as the CEO after his tumultuous ouster. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, winding our way through some of the headlines. Also coming up in our second hour, The Mystery of the Magi. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, Ford will scale back a planned $3.5 billion electric vehicle battery plant in Michigan. And the Biden administration gave a $3 billion loan to a solar company accused of scamming the elderly. 
Holland's uh, far-right Wilders won from last Sunday's stunning victory in Argentina by pro-Trump nationalist Javier Millet to Wednesday's big wind in the Netherlands that by longtime anti-immigrant uh, candidate Geert Wilders. Uh, people are fed up with uh, policies, including unchecked immigration. As CNN lamented, the Netherlands woke up Thursday to an unexpected victory for Dutch anti-EU far-right populist Geert Wilders and his Freedom Party, a forecast win that has triggered uh, shockwaves in the Netherlands and could have reverberations across Europe and beyond. The provisional outcome showed the PVV had won 37 seats and will be the largest party in the House of Representatives. Now, the Heritage Foundation's Niall Gartner put it into context in which he wrote, the Dutch people are saying they've had enough of this and the huge cultural changes which have come in a, as a result. I think the Gert Wilders effect is going to spread across much of Europe, and I think his electoral victory is a massive game changer, end quote. Indeed, nationalist candidates in Sweden, Italy, and Spain have also scored victories recently, and in Ireland, as Sky News reported, more than four, 400 police officers clashed with enraged crowds over a stabbing near a primary school, which left a five-year-old schoolgirl in critical condition and a female teacher in her 30s in a very serious condition. Authorities are refusing to release any information about the suspect who's in custody, but the Irish appear to have drawn educated conclusions about his background. A recently released study published by the Institute of Labor Economics found that since the U.S. Supreme Court's overturning of Roe v. Wade, the lives of more than 30,000 babies have been saved. Our primary analysis indicates that in the first six months of 2023, births rose by an average of 2.3 percent in states enforcing total abortion bans compared to the control groups of states where abortion rights remained protected amounting to approximately 32,000 additional annual births resulting from abortion bans, the research observed. Well, this result is thanks to 14 conservative states having enacted limits and outright bans on abortion, which then saw a 100 percent decrease rather in abortions during the study period. The states seeing the biggest decline in abortions include Alabama, Georgia, Louisiana, Tennessee, Texas and Wisconsin. With an ill-advised meme, PETA sought to shame Americans for enjoying turkey on Thanksgiving. I certainly enjoyed mine. PETA's meme posted on X featured a cartoon image of turkeys sitting around a table with a headless roasted human on a platter. The meme was captioned, we're lucky turkeys um, would never do this to us. You don't have to do it to them either, end quote. Well, thanks to X's community notes feature, where readers can add context Peter's uh, misinformation play was hilariously corrected pronto. As the community note observed, turkeys are not vegetarians. Turkeys eat mice, lizards, frogs, and just about anything they can fit in their mouths. If turkeys were larger or had the technological means to farm and eat humans, their current diet reveals they likely would. Seems the real turkeys here are PETA's mindless gobblers. Well, if panic um, hasn't set in yet at the uh, Biden White House, um, then we're sure it will be triggered. Last month, in what may have come as a surprise to, to some, polls indicate that Donald Trump had overtaken Joe Biden in four of five battleground states in a potential head-to-head matchup. Those polls indicated that Biden had lost voters more than Trump had gained them. That is evidently changing now, and with the most recent polls, Biden is now falling farther behind Trump 
And to make matters worse for Biden, Trump's average voter share in national polling is now rising. In other words, swing voters are swinging toward Trump. And this includes a surprise NBC News poll that found voters under 35 years of age now favor Trump over Biden, 46 percent to 42 percent. What is clear is that Biden is in a downward spiral. What's not clear is whether the uh, candidate will pull out. The question is, are a majority of Americans simply done with Biden? And uh, will that result in a new candidate for the the, uh, Democrats? Time, of course, is running out. An apparent anti-Arab hate crime in Vermont has taken place. And what was clearly a targeted attack, three men in their 20s and a, a Palestinian descent were shot early Saturday evening in Burlington, Vermont. Two of the men were wearing the traditional headscarf that former PLO boss Yasser Arafat used to wear and that has since come to symbolize Palestinian rights. As CBS News reported, the three men were in Burlington visiting the home of one of the victim's relatives for Thanksgiving when an armed white man confronted them and, without speaking, allegedly discharged at least four rounds. Two of the victims were shot in the torso, while the third man was shot in the lower extremities, police said. Two of them were listed in stable condition, while the third victim sustained much more serious injuries. Soon thereafter, police arrested a man who happened to be uh, Caucasian. Joe Biden uh, was briefed on the incident, as was Vermont Socialist um, Senator Bernie Sanders, who condemned it as shocking and deeply upsetting. Biden and his handlers, meanwhile, have thus far remained curiously silent rather than trying to score cheap points with the Arab American community. Derek Chauvin has been uh, seriously injured in prison in a stabbing. Family members say Hamas hostages ate poorly, slept on benches, waited up to two hours to go to the bathroom. Disappointed, Biden apologized uh, after showing skepticism about Hamas death toll claims. Senator Elizabeth Warren, the Democrat from Massachusetts, is at long last acknowledging that Obamacare has increased health care cost prices. Redundant there. And created other unintentional consequences, the Wall Street Journal editorial board wrote on Friday. Uh, Warren, who has long supported the Affordable Care Act, the official name for Obamacare, has recently come to an epiphany about industry consolidation and price increases caused by the health care law. Per the journal, a letter to the Health and Human Services Department inspector general was aimed at determining if vertically integrating health care companies are hiking prescription drug costs and are evading federal regulations. In other news, New York retailers lost four point four billion dollars due to organized uh, shoplifting rings in 2022. And of course, you're paying for that. The lack of affirmation is child abuse. That's according to a new Biden rule that applies to transgender standards. Um, for foster care and all girls Catholic college will admit men who identify as women or trans and New York City enacted a law barring discrimination based on weight. Black Friday shoppers spent a record nine point eight billion dollars in U.S. online sales up seven point five percent from last year. And of course, today is Cyber Monday. Those numbers are very likely to go up tomorrow, of course, giving Tuesday. Just saying. Well, on this day in history, 1901, the U.S. Army War College is established in Washington, D.C. In the year 1910, New York's Pennsylvania Station officially opens. 1924, Macy's first Thanksgiving Day parade, billed as a Christmas parade, takes place in New York. 1949, or rather 1945, General George C. Marshall is named Special U.S. Envoy to China by President Harry S. Truman to try to end hostilities between the Nationalists and the Communists. 1962, the first Boeing 727 is rolled out at the company's plant 
in Renton, Washington. 1973, the Senate votes 92 to 3 to confirm Gerald R. Ford as vice president, succeeding Spiro T. Agnew, who had resigned. 1978, San Francisco Mayor George Mascone and City Supervisor Harvey Milk, a gay rights activist, are shot to death inside City Hall by former Supervisor Dan White. White would serve five years for manslaughter and commit suicide in October of 1985. 1999, Northern Ireland's biggest political party, the Ulster Unionists, they clear the way for the speedy formation of an unprecedented Protestant Catholic administration. 2000, a day after George W. Bush is certified the winner of Florida's presidential vote, Al Gore lays out his case for letting the courts settle the nation's long count election. 2005, doctors in France perform the world's first partial face transplant. Um, a rather um, difficult procedure on a woman disfigured by a dog. Uh, Isabel Dinmore receives the lips, nose, and chin of a brain-dead woman in a 15-hour operation. 2008, Indian commandos, they fight to wrest control of two luxury hotels and a Jewish center uh, for militants a day after a chain of attacks across Mumbai. And 2008, Iraq's parliament approves a pact requiring all U.S. troops to be out of the country by January 1st, 2012. Well, the train scene in Mexico headed toward the U.S. border um, had what appeared to be hundreds of migrants riding on top as record numbers of people trying to enter the United States continues. The migrants were riding atop the BNSF railway train in central Mexico as it departed from its... um, uh, ports in um, about 200 miles northwest of Mexico City. The train route goes from there to uh, Torin, Monterrey, and then um, ne- uh, Negras, a border city across from uh, Eagle Pass, Texas. So numbers continue to rise. We've got news coming up at the top of the hour and in the second hour. A Father Dwight Longenecker, Mystery of the Magi, and for Portland listeners who will continue listening, uh, Paul Willie, a final weekend of the Portland Singing Christmas Tree coming up Friday through Sunday. You'll hear more about that. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, we are full on into the Christmas season. We're singing Christmas carols and enjoying fellowship with one another. Among the songs that are familiar, We Three Kings of Orient are. Well, is that song, are those lyrics actually reflective of what the scriptures tell us and what we know, or at least think we know, about the Magi who came at the time of the birth of the Savior. Well, my next guest, um, well, he challenges what we think we know and urges us to look at what the scriptures actually say and what history can tell us. Everything you know or think you know about the famous Christmas story of the Magi is... Well, wrong. In his astonishing book, Mystery of the Magi, The Quest to Identify the Three Wise Men, uh, Dwight Longenecker, priest, author, and award-winning blogger, challenges the legend that three kings guided by a magical star joined adoring shepherds at the birthplace of Jesus. Now, let me just say that he's not suggesting that the scriptures are not inaccurate, but our understanding of them in the context in which all of this took place should be better understood. He pieces together evidence from the biblical studies, history, archaeology, and astronomy, 
and he uncovers where the wise men came from, why they came, while providing a new and fascinating view of the time and place in which Jesus Christ chose to enter the world. It really is a fascinating book. Well, Dwight Longenecker is a Catholic priest, award-winning blogger, freelance writer, a graduate of Oxford and Bob Jones University. He's written 16 books on different aspects of religion. He's a highly sought-after speaker for scholarly and men's conference events and often leads parish missions, retreats, and diocesan events. He and his wife have four children. He serves as pastor of Our Lady of the Rosary Church in Greenville, South Carolina, and joins us to talk about the Magi we think we know but probably don't fully understand. Hey, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm glad to be with you. You know, I'm going to be singing on Friday at an event, singing a Christmas song, and the song that I chose for that event is We Three Kings, and now I'm rethinking the whole, <laughs> the whole thing because you have challenged us to consider, first of all, what the scriptures actually say, what they don't say, and to look at other sources to help us better understand who these wise men, if you will, uh, who they were. What sparked this uh, interest for you in clarifying what, uh, what actually happened? Well, you know, I was asked to write an article about the origin of the wise men, and if you look into that, the usual um, research will say they were, they were uh, um, from a, a cast of um, sort of wizards and, and shamans from, from ancient Persia, uh, if they existed at all. But an awful lot of the Bible scholars uh, don't think the whole thing is a fairy tale. So I, I sort of went back and said, well, I'm going to look at this in more detail. Uh, and what got me started was the prophecies in Isaiah, which say that um, the kings from Sheba and uh, Edom and Selah will come to the Messiah. So I said, where was Edom and Selah and Sheba? And it's in the Arabian Peninsula. So I thought, okay, let's see who was there during Jesus, uh, the, at the time of Jesus' birth. And that opened up a whole new area of discovery, which was really fascinating. Mm. Well, it is fascinating because, uh, again, I think we think we know because that's how uh, the story has been handed down from generation to generation, despite the fact that the scriptures say some very specific things and leave some of the things we've embraced out. In fact, you make the point that some of what we have attached to that part of the story isn't biblical at all. It, it, its origins come from other sources altogether. Yes. Um, the, the Magi story, more than any other story in the, in the Bible, and, and uh, has been embroidered and added to uh, with lots of um, elaboration over, over 2,000 years of, of, of storytelling. Uh, and an awful lot of the uh, what we accept as the typical story that we all would tell at Christmas and see in the Christmas play of three wise men who came from Africa, Asia, and India who followed a, a magical star step-by-step step on a long desert journey. None of that's actually in the Bible. Uh, and while I sort of take those legends apart, I do actually show that Matthew's simple telling of the tale is remarkably accurate to the to the um, po- politics and the geography and and the um, context that we know at the time of Jesus' birth. So while I do take apart all the le- legends and I explain where the legends came from, um, they they originated began to originate in in the third century uh, in Syria and in Armenia uh, and in Persia, where the church was very influenced by Gnosticism. Uh, and by Zoroastrianism. And these influences came in, and extra-biblical writings began to circulate around about these uh, mystical wise men, uh, which were fantastical fairy tales. Uh, but these um, uh, extra-writings began to influence the tradition, which then came into um, uh, what we understand uh, in the European tradition, and it continued to develop right through the Middle Ages and beyond. 
Mm. Now, were the Magi initially seeking the Messiah? Uh, Were they responding to Messianic prophecies? Or were they on a diplomatic mission uh, to the court of Herod the Great? Or both, perhaps? yeah, we we can't really separate church and state um, back then. <laughs> the two were the two were really um, hand in hand. I I propose that they were actually on a on a diplomatic mission from the court of Aratus the Fourth in in the neighboring Nabatea to the court of Herod, and I explain why. But I also explain how these wise men would have been. Um, attuned to the Hebrew, the Jewish scriptures, they would have known the Old Testament, they would have known Isaiah, uh, and the anticipation of a Messiah figure was actually, um, it's, it's amazing, it was widespread not just amongst the Jews, but all over the ancient world. Um, there are tracings of um, uh, uh, prophecies of a Messiah figure in Egypt, in Persia, in Greece, and in Roman literature, uh, and so uh, yes, they were looking for a Messiah, they were looking for a Messiah figure, but they were also on diplomatic mission. Uh, and so it's not really either or. Now you say Nebatia. Help us in the modern world to understand where that might be and, and who these people were. Well, the Nabataean civilization is basically, uh, they dominated the Arabian Peninsula. So when you think of Saudi Arabia and Jordan, that's the Nabataeans. Uh, and we don't know much about them because they didn't leave written records like the Romans and the Greeks and, and, and the Egyptians and, and the rest of the ancient civilizations. Uh, and basically, you think of them as a, a more, instead of a nation, as a, confeder- a trade confederation. Um, different tribes and different influences came together, and they dominated the trade routes from Yemen uh, across the Arabian Peninsula and, and uh, Palestine to the port of Gaza and then running north and south from Egypt up to Syria, Armenia, and Persia. And they had their trade caravans with camels um, bringing goods from, uh, luxury goods from uh, India and China uh, across to the rest of the Roman Empire, and then going back east, taking um, gauze, comes from Gaza, uh, Damascus comes from Damascus, and other hmm. riches from, from the Roman Empire back across. They were traders. But th- this is the interesting thing as well. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh was their cash crop. The, the, mines, the gold mines of, South, of Arabia were world famous for the purest and best gold in the world. Also, incense and myrrh is, grow, is taken from the bushes that only grow in the Arabian Peninsula and Northeast Africa, the territory they controlled. So therefore, the gold, frankincense, and myrrh also indicates uh, where they came from. Mm-hmm. Now, we refer to the anomaly in the heavens as a star. Is that what they saw, or would, it, uh, astronomically speaking, is there a better explanation for what they viewed in the heavens that indicated something significant was happening on Earth? Yeah, yes. When you read Matthew carefully, he never says that they followed a magical star step by step across the desert journey. This came in in the Gnostic writings in the third century, um, in various different uh, myths and, and sort of fairy tales that, that people wrote about the Magi. Um, they say, Matthew says that the wise men saw his star rising. And the, there are several really good books about this written by astronomers and, and, and people who know a lot more about it than I do. Uh, and, but basically they say there was a planet, uh, not, they, they didn't distinguish between planets and stars back then. There was a planet that was rising uh, in the constellation associated with the Jews 
uh, it was the planet Jupiter, which is the royal planet. Uh, and as that star was rising, being astrologers, they concluded that there was a new king that was going to be born to the Jewish nation. Um, that's the short version. It's actually much more complicated than that. Uh, uh, and some of the, I think the best opinion says that it was a combination of uh, reading uh, astrological signs, but also there may very well have been uh, a, a startling comet, um, which also was another uh, sign in the heavens, uh, which helped to direct them. So uh, my opinion is that it's actually a combination of the two. Again, just uh, absolutely fascinating. Now, the song that I was going to sing tomorrow, uh, the opening line is, We Three Kings. We have <laughs> decided that there were three of them. Where does that um, numeric reference come from, and what's more likely to have been the case? Well, first of all, the, the kings, uh, they're first uh, seen as being kings by uh, Tert- the first church fathers, Tertullian and Origen, writing in around I believe their dates are around the 2nd century. And they took that because of the prophecies in Isaiah, which said that the kings will come from Edom and Selah. And therefore, they concluded that these men were kings. Uh, in fact, I don't believe they were kings, but they certainly had a royal connection in as much as I believe that they were diplomats coming from the court of uh, Aratus and coming to another king. So there was a royal connection, even though um, they were coming from a king, even though they may not have been kings themselves. And the number three, uh, very early on, um, the writers and the preachers and, and, and the theologians in the church began to say there must have been three of them because of the gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. However, the early traditions differ. Uh, in some of the um, legends and stories about the wise men, there are four. In, in I think it's a Coptic manuscript, there are 12. Um, so, uh, and another uh, ancient uh, Christian Arthur's too. So, you know, the number is not stated in Matthew's Gospel. So I guess I'll be singing Silent Night tomorrow. No, the thing is, you can still, and people say, because I also point out they probably didn't ride camels. Um, and, and people say, can I still have camels in my crib set? Of course. And you can sing We Three Kings of Orientar and all the rest of it. Um, but it's also good to know the historical foundation of, and, and of these legends. Absolutely. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll continue our conversation. Again, we're talking about a fascinating book that gives us a perspective on what happened at the time of uh, the birth of Christ. My guest is Father Dwight Longenecker. His book is titled The Mystery of the Magi, The Quest to Identify the Three Wise Men or Group of Guys from Somewhere. Quick break. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing a fascinating conversation with Father Dwight Longenecker. He's the author of The Mystery of the Magi, The Quest to Identify the Three Wise Men, or as you know, more possibly from places other than where we thought they came from. Now, um, let me ask you um, why the story of the Magi is important to the narrative of Jesus' birth. Now, we know that if it's in Scripture, it's meaningful. So help us better understand why that's why mention is made of this visitation. And I think the, the other question is, when did it actually happen? There's all kinds of uh, ideas as to when they would have arrived. You know, traditionally, they're, on the, they're in the nativity scene with Jesus, Mary, and the infant. Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, there are a couple of questions there. I, first of all, again, uh, we, if we look simply at Matthew's Gospel, uh, Matthew says that they came to the house where the young child was, and they found the young child with Mary, his mother. And the word young child is, is best translated toddler. So um, they're not in a stable at this point, they're in a house, uh, and, the, and Jesus is, the, is, a, is a toddler. So 
And, and then Herod, remember, said, tell us when the star appeared. And then he asks for all of the, the babies two years old and younger to be killed. Therefore, we put those facts together and say, perhaps the, the wise men came to pay their homage to the Christ child um, when Jesus was um, young, younger than two years old. Um, and so uh, most uh, everyone just reading the text would make that conclusion. So, yeah, it's, it's nice to have them there with the shepherds on Christmas Eve, but they, they came a couple of years later um, and, and paid their homage to, to the Christ child. Uh, the other question that you asked, um, I forget what it was. Oh, just <laughs> generally, <laughs> generally why this uh, is important to the narrative of uh, oh, the birth oh, of yes. Jesus. I mean, obviously, if it's mentioned, it happened, but we, we want to better understand why was that included in the story that, that's so familiar to many of us. Right. We, well, we, that's when we look at Matthew's audience and we look at Matthew's um, provenance. In other words, where was he writing from? Matthew is the first of the Gospels to be written, uh, I believe, although scholars debate that. Um, and, but anyway, he is writing from, to a Jewish audience, uh, probably in Judea, around the area of Jerusalem and Bethlehem and so forth. So he's writing from this, in the area to the same people who were there. Now, <clears throat> we know from the early church that there was a big controversy, and that amongst the Jewish Christians uh, in, in the early days, and that is, are the Gentiles allowed to, 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 to receive the gospel? The Jews said that, that, they're, that the Gentiles are dogs, and so um, there was a, a strong contingent, a strong party who said, no, Jesus is here, he's the Savior of the Jews, he's not for the Gentiles. And of course, we know from the book of the Acts of the Apostles um, that Peter and, and the Apostles uh, Peter had a dream, and, and someone came to see him, and they debated back and forth. Uh, and so this was a big debate uh, in uh, the, just at the time when Matthew was writing his gospel. Therefore, we know which side Matthew was on. Matthew was on the side that <laughs> the gospel was actually for all people, and that's one of the key reasons why he um, tells us the, the Magi story. He says, look, these, these pagans, these men uh, who were not Jews, uh, came and were drawn by the Lord uh, to worship uh, his son, Jesus, uh, the Lamb of God, uh, at his birth. And right from the very beginning, therefore, the Lord had planned uh, for them to come. He quotes some of the prophecies from Isaiah, uh, which also show that um, all nations will come, and, and the house of the Lord, the, the temple will be a house of prayer for all nations, and that all the nations will come to worship. So uh, that's the reason why Matthew includes it. He wants to make the point that the gospel is for the non-Jews. Ah, ah. Well, let's let's talk about historical evidence that would prove the existence of this group of of uh, travelers. Uh, one could argue it's in the scriptures, therefore it it happened and it must be true. But we'd be accused of circular reasoning. Is there any extra biblical um, uh, historical evidence that? Uh, that supports the story in in the scriptures. Well, uh, the, the, we have not yet found any inscriptions uh, in uh, Petra. By the way, the famous city of Petra was the capital of the Nabataean um, civilization. Uh, we have not found any inscriptions uh, there which say this was the home of the three wise men who went to see Jesus, baby Jesus. <laughs> but what I did in my book was I, I gathered together um, evidence about uh, the, the Magi and their history, right back through five centuries. Uh, in Persia and around the rest of the ancient world. I gathered together the history of the Nabataeans and explained uh, what their motivations were and what, what their um, life was like. I looked at the politics of the time when Jesus was born uh, and drew it all together to build up um, bit by bit with lots of uh, little pieces of evidence. One of the most intriguing ones uh, is uh, were the Nabataean, um, the, the religious people, the, the wise men in Nabataea, were they stargazers? 
Uh, and in the 1930s, in a temple uh, in Jordan, in Nabataean territory, from the time of Christ, from the first century, uh, they discovered uh, a stone zodiac, uh, which is proof, therefore, that the Nabataeans were stargazers. Furthermore, um, we very recently, an archaeoastronomer named uh, Juan Antonio Belmonte, who works in Spain, uh, determined that the hilltop temples of the Nabataeans were actually built uh, according to the alignment of the stars and the alignment of the planets. So we know that they were a, a stargazing um, peoples. We know that, that was part of their religion, uh, and we know they had deep interest in the, the doings of the Hebrew people because they were they were cousins uh, in a way. The tribes of Arabia were cousins to the Jews, uh, and so all of these pieces to get to, uh, of evidence together. It's kind of like if we're looking for the wise men, who are the best, uh, you know, suspects, mm-hmm. and, and and they're the ones who come up. Oh, again, just fascinating. One of the things you do in the process of helping to help us to better understand who the Magi may have been, um, you also refute arguments against the the Christmas story. Those who would suggest that yes, it's a it's a warm and fuzzy story, but it really is not true. And particularly the Magi, they were not a part of that story. And you uh, really uh, focus on those who whose exegesis would dismiss elements of Scripture. Yes, I, I was. I, I, I mean, I did have an agenda. I wasn't making things up, but I did want to find out uh, the historical basis for the Magi story, and was not very patient, really, with the uh, academics and the scholars who simply say, "Oh, yes, it's a fairy tale. Everybody knows it's a fairy tale." In fact, somebody said to me, "Father, why do you think after two thousand years you've discovered the answer?" And I said, "Well, part of the reason is that nobody else bothered to look it up because they thought it was a fairy tale." Uh, I mean, if, if you think, for instance, um, Johnny Appleseed, let's say, uh, had no historical existence, was a fairy tale person, you would never bother to do any research to find him. Uh, and so I thought, well, let's have a look anyway. And what I found was uh, just really exciting. Well, it, it, uh, this is a great book, and I thoroughly enjoy the, the notion of um, better understanding that element of Scripture and th- be also sort of putting a check on what I've added to what the Scripture actually says. You know, I think we need yes. to be uh, careful about what it says as opposed to what our familiar um, legends um, add to it. Um, our, our, I think your listeners can learn a great deal about the Christmas story and um, just the importance of all of those details. Did the Magi come to worship? Um, do you think, uh, obviously there's no evidence to support this, but did they come to worship the Messiah? Did they come out of curiosity? Was this just one culture acknowledging uh, the value of elements from another? What do you think their motive well, was in coming? I'd like to get to that in a minute, but first I would like to remind your listeners that this book is also um, an apologetics book. You see, a lot of non-believers will say to Christians, oh, you believe a lot of legends and fairy tales and make-believe stuff. And in fact, when it comes to the Magi story, they're right. <laughs> a lot of what we tell, the story we tell at Christmas, is made up of these extra things that are extra biblical. Um, and therefore, uh, it's our duty to pare those things away and look at the facts and look at the evidence and look at um, what really did happen. So that's, it was partially an apologetics effort to, to put this together. Mm-hmm. Um, but to answer your question, I, I believe that the, the wise men were. Um, in their own culture, uh, religious seekers. I think they were looking for the Messiah. I believe that they knew the, the prophecies of Isaiah, uh, and I, I put in my book why I believe they, mm-hmm. they knew the prophecies of Isaiah. 
They also knew and understood and had very ancient links um, with the Jewish religion. Uh, the Arabian tribes all claimed descent from Abraham like the Jews did. And there's very fascinating details about how their religion was similar to the Jews. Furthermore, they were the next-door neighbors to the Jews. They would have been um, very intrigued by the prophecies uh, of, the, of the coming king of, king of Israel, the son of David, the Lamb of God, uh, the Messiah. So I think they were on a religious and spiritual search, uh, but it was also... Uh, as it happened, uh, had, a, had a political dimension to yeah, it. Yeah, geopolitical interest. Mm-hmm. What do you think yeah. happened to these seekers once they discovered the Messiah, brought the gifts um, to him? What became of them, do you think? Well, that's where I get into, <laughs> that's where I get into a lot of, I think, really fascinating speculation. Um, it, my speculation is that if Herod was, was um, watching out for them because he was mad at them, he would also have told their boss, the king of Nabatea. Therefore, when it says they went back to their country by a different way, Matthew says they went back by a different way, I think they didn't go home at all to their home city. I think they went instead to Damascus, which was in the northern part of their territory, but at that time was controlled by the Romans, not controlled by the king of uh, the Nabataeans. Therefore, uh, they would have been in their own country, but they would have been safe under the under the um, rule of the Romans uh, in the city of Damascus. Now, I think Damascus, because you might remember where um, the Acts of the Apostles connects 30 or 40 years later after Jesus' death and resurrection, St. Paul goes to persecute the Christians who are already in Damascus. Um, very early on, Damascus is one of the centers of the church, and he says they're already there. And there are a few intriguing little hints in the research um, that the, Ma- the Magi were in Damascus, uh, and or there were wise men in Damascus, uh, and that there was a very early Christian community there. So I speculate about that, and I say, did um, St. Paul actually learn his theology uh, from this very early Christian community, which perhaps was founded by the by the Magi, um, is there evidence for that? Well, I didn't I didn't dig much further. <laughs> I'll let somebody else do that. <laughs> but it's a it's an in, informed speculation that's uh, worth pondering. Thank you so much for joining us. I so appreciate the book, The Mystery of the Magi: The Quest to Identify the Three Wise Men. Father Longenecker, thanks for joining us, and Merry Christmas. And- Thanks for having me on the show. You have a great time. And you go ahead and sing three, uh, We Three Kings. <laughs> okay, I'll okay. do it. <laughs> Thank you so much. Yeah, bye-bye. Uh, right. Father uh, Dwight and Longenecker, The Mystery of the Magi, The Quest to Identify the Three Wise Men. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show Podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. And I have to tell you, I'm pretty excited because with me in studio is Paul Willie. He is the director of the Portland Singing Christmas Tree, now celebrating its 61st year. And believe it or not, Thanksgiving is right around the corner, which means the Singing Christmas Tree is opening its curtains uh, the very next weekend, or that very weekend, in fact. Uh, Paul, I'm so delighted to have you uh, with us today to invite our listeners and to remind them of the Portland Singing Christmas Tree, which has been a tradition here in the Portland area for decades. Welcome. Yes, 61 years, in fact. And I got to tell you, Christmas starts early for the Portland Singing Christmas Tree, right? We start our rehearsals back in August. We've been preparing. We've been excited about this. And to be opening on the Saturday after Thanksgiving... We couldn't be more thrilled. Yeah, it is absolutely thrilling. And it has become a tradition for generations of families in our community. 
It has been. You know, 61 years that the Portland Singing Christmas Tree has been around. We've endured a pandemic. We've endured all kinds of different changes in and around our community. But what I love more than anything is two two parts. First, the choir is made up of our community, which means it's a representation of our neighbors, mm-hmm. our friends, our family. And then the second is, here's 61 years. We've been bringing the story of Christmas, the true origin of Christmas to our community like uh, like n- like never before. Songs and music and acting and story that all comes together in 90 wonderful minutes for ages young and old. It's really a remarkable experience. You know, there are a few things these days that bring people together, like the singing Christmas tree. Traditional music, you have some new and contemporary music. You have a good mix of all kinds of things that appeal to the hearts of people who are desperately looking for something to bring joy to them during this season and beyond. Absolutely right. You know, when we put together this show every single year, we try to think about how can we come up with the right mix of music, the right show, and the right experience that really will appeal to truly anyone and everyone. Um, This year, I'm particularly excited because I have not one, but two of my daughters in the show and my wife now, which is really fun. But we all came to the show since my kids were babies, and it's been an experience for us to see them come and see and experience it. For them to now be in it is even more remarkable. One thing when I think about the music is Christmas means a lot of different things to, uh, to each and every one of us. But to open the show with a message of joy, mm-hmm. that the Christmas season can and should be about joy for all of us, regardless of our walk in life, regardless of where we've come from, and even what we're experiencing uh, through hardships and otherwise— Christmas time is a time of joy, a time to celebrate, and we really want our show to be about bringing that feeling of joy into the Christmas season. Yeah, absolutely. Now, the Singing Christmas Tree had been at the Keller Auditorium for many, many years. We're now at Sunset Church off of Cornell Road, right off of the uh, of Sunset Highway. Uh, the change was really um, something that uh, people who've come to the Singing Christmas Tree were really grateful for. They really were. You know, um, coming out of the pandemic, when uh, we looked to uh, start our show again, we took one year off. Um, and as we looked to reemerge, we talked to our patrons and said, look, we're looking at coming back to the Keller Auditorium. How do you feel about that? There is some unrest down there anyway. And our, our patrons said, gosh, you know, it, we, we really aren't feeling that, that safe being down there, which told us exactly what we needed to do. We prayed about it. We thought about where can we go and sunset opened their doors to us. It is so easy to get there, straight out Highway 26. There's free parking, um, plenty of room for all. It's really a wonderful place, and we couldn't be more thankful for Sunset Church. Oh, it's a beautiful auditorium, and they have been so gracious, not only to welcome the choir, but to welcome all of our guests during this Christmas season. You will feel at home when you walk through the doors and are greeted by smiling faces who have been preparing for you for many, many, many weeks. While most of us were enjoying the summer, the Singing Christmas Tree Choir was preparing the welcome that you are going to experience when you walk through those doors. We're talking about a 90-minute show, as we mentioned, all kinds of music, an immersive nativity, which for me is just the the um, the icing on the cake. Um, a special visit from Santa, his dancing elves. You've got the Jefferson dancers. We've got the beautiful adult choir. You've got the children's choir. And these kids, I'm telling you, they're talented. They're great performers. They add so much uh, to the show. Uh, a whole list of, of soloists, Timothy Greenidge, Aaron Tamlin, Jennifer Davies, Courtney Temple. I might sing a song or two. <laughs> it's just going to be a wonderful tradition that continues. And I think we'll surprise people a little bit this year around with a maybe a special guest they don't expect. That is true. And, you know, I hate to give away the story too much, but we might get a visit from the Grinch. 
um, every year our story comes together in such a, a special and fun, exciting way. Um, I guarantee you, even though this may be a community choir that comes together, this is a professional show, and yes. it is one that is uh, is one not to miss this year. You know, when I first um, was invited to come to the Singing Christmas Tree, I expected I was going to see a choir standing in the shape of a Christmas tree, and they would do a number of selections, and that would be it. This is a presentation that I think surprises anyone who is coming for the very first time. It is a pageant. It is spectacular. They're singing and dancing and choreography and dialogue all throughout. And as you pointed out, this is a professional presentation. I I, I hadn't mentioned, but uh, Greg Tamlin, who is a Pacific Northwest treasure, has been part of putting the storyline together and making this a presentation that you could take to Broadway or any other big house in the across the country. Uh, and really enjoy at Christmas time. Absolutely right. Uh, Greg is one of the best people in the business to partner with. Oh my um, goodness! And he's been he's done remarkable things with the tree, uh, shaping it and growing it, and evolving the organization and the storyline and everything that we get a chance to bring to our community. We're talking about the Pacific Northwest Premier Christmas event. Um, we're not just a show. We're a, a cherished tradition here in the Portland metro. And you have uh, nine opportunities to be a part of this year's Singing Christmas Tree. I cannot tell you how often I hear from people, oh, I've never been. I've always wanted to go. Okay, here's your heads up. It's coming up. The Saturday after Christmas, you have four opportunities that weekend. Two performances on Saturday, November 25th. Two performances on Sunday, November 26th. But wait, there's more. On Friday, December 1st, you have an opportunity for an evening performance. There's a matinee on Saturday and Sunday, December 2nd and 3rd. And evening performances on Saturday, December the 2nd, 3rd as well. And then... The Singing Christmas Tree will be a memory, one that uh, we hope you don't regret having missed. So let me encourage you. There are a couple of ways that you can uh, join us for this year's Singing Christmas Tree. And I promise you, you will walk away with a song in your heart and joy as well. You can call the box office to purchase your tickets at 503-557-8733. That's 503-557-8733. 8733. You can also go to singingchristmastree.org uh, online and you can purchase your tickets there as well. This has been a pretty big weekend and week as we're preparing for the audience to join us <clears throat> later um, this week. Tell us a little bit about how we prepare in these final days before we open the uh, the doors to our audience. Absolutely. You know, what's great about the show when it comes together is we spend time rehearsing as small groups, as choirs, as youth, as instrumentalists, but this past weekend, Saturday, uh, Sunday, and then every night this week leading up to Thanksgiving, we're now taking all those different puzzle pieces and we're putting them together into this most incredible tapestry up on stage. So we have lights, uh, lights, sound, uh, actors, every soloist, choir members, youth, dancers, all coming together here actually tonight for the very first time, which I could not be more thrilled about. Um, I love Christmas. And this is one that um, that I'm particularly excited about this year for year 61. Mm. Now, I, we mentioned just briefly that the Jefferson Dancers are going to be back this year. They've been a part of the tree uh, off and on for a number of years, and we're thrilled to have them back. You know, they bring such incredible life to the stage. And what I love more than anything is here is this incredible talent in our city, and we get to share the stage with them and get uh, get a chance to have them share their gifts with us. Um, they're, uh, they are absolute phenomenal dancers. They bring every part of our story and song to life. 
Um, one particular piece that I love that we do is uh, The Drummer Boy with Timothy Greenidge. But the Jefferson Dancers really take that song to the next level. Yeah. Now, you can hear about it or you can come and hear and see it for yourselves. And we would like to extend a personal invitation. Come, bring family members, bring your neighbors, bring your friends. You can purchase your tickets at singingchristmastree.org online or you can call 503 503- Five five seven eighty seven thirty three. That's five zero three five five seven eight seven three three. And let me tell you, I do not want to hear you tell me at Fred Meyer on let's see Monday, December the fourth. Oh, I was planning to come to the singing Christmas tree. Is it over? Now you know. We're going <laughs> to take a quick break, but we'll continue our conversation in just a moment. Again, with me in studio is Paul Willie. He is the director of the Portland Singing Christmas Tree in its sixty first year of bringing joy, peace, hope, and love to the Portland metro area at Christmas. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing my conversation with Paul Willie. He is the director of the Singing Christmas Tree Choir, the Pacific Northwest Treasure. Uh, Greg Tamblin is also part of this uh, wonderful performance. We've got uh, nine performances available, a 125-voice choir, a children's cast, soloists that include Timothy Greenidge, Aaron Tamblin, Jennifer Davies, Courtney Temple, um, it's just going to be a spectacular presentation, and every year it just seems to get better and better and better, and this year will be no exception. As I mentioned, there are nine opportunities for you to uh, to join us, beginning with Saturday, November 25th, with a matinee performance at 2, and an evening performance that same evening at 6 o'clock p.m. Then again on Sunday, you have a 2 and 6 o'clock performance, a matinee and evening performance, Wait till next Friday, and there's an evening at 7 o'clock p.m. on Friday, December 1st. And again, on uh, Saturday and Sunday, December 2nd and 3rd, there are matinee performances at 2 o'clock, and then in the evening at 6 o'clock p.m. on both Saturday and Sunday. You are cordially invited to attend, but let me encourage you not to come alone. You're going to need to have somebody to elbow, to laugh with, to sing along with. So call our box office at 503 503- Five five seven eighty seven thirty three. That's five zero three five five seven eighty seven thirty three. Or you can go to singingchristmastree dot org to uh, to purchase your tickets. Well, I tell you, I'm excited for tonight's rehearsal because I know it's just days away from uh, when the uh, the downbeat strikes and the the singing Christmas tree of twenty twenty three is about to begin. What motivates you to keep coming back to serve as the director? It's a lot more work than I think most of us ever really um, understand, but it's something that you seem to have in your heart. You know, I really do. I think um, <laughs> first of all, when I first joined, I thought, "Oh, this will be easy. We'll start around October, November. We'll put on a couple shows and we'll be out." I did not realize <laughs> you start in the early January around show planning, et cetera, but. Listen, the story of Christmas could not be more important to me personally. Um, That is the story of Jesus coming to this earth. Mm -hmm. It's the very story of salvation. And for us to be able to be a part of telling that story to our community, a community that needs to hear that more than ever before, that to me is what really motivates me more than ever. Uh, Music has been so important to me in my life. In uh, growing up, I've been in uh, worship teams and churches, in high school choirs and college choirs, etc., but I really believe something that's special about a choir is that the sum is greater than the individual yes. parts themselves. And when you get a chance to see and feel this choir come alive, it is truly a remarkable experience. You know, it really is. The Singing Christmas Tree is steeped in tradition, but also offers fresh elements and new songs. And one of the things that I uh, appreciate so much is the immersive nativity 
uh, which is a part of the program. It really culminates in the presentation of the origin, the true meaning of Christmas, and invites us to take a glimpse into the scene in Bethlehem on that that lonely night. Um, it, it's so beautifully done and graphic in ways that I think people who are coming for the first time might be quite surprised. Absolutely. You know, a, a lot of times we think of the Christmas story as something simply printed on a page, and we like to take that and really bring it to life in a special way right in front of your faces with Mary and Joseph and the baby being born, and then the shepherds and the wise men. But it, it all comes together. That is the whole purpose of why we are yeah. there. And for that to be the, the true pinnacle of our show at the toward the very end, it's really quite remarkable. Um, the last thing I will mention, too, is um, I really do believe that there is something so special about this show because it does truly have something for everyone, regardless of where you're at in your day, in mm-hmm. your walk, in your life. Um, I, I think I think Christmas is one of those seasons that we all need a little more joy. Yeah. Um, and so the, our show is really all about how can we kick off this season for everyone with that message. Well, you know, I think that's a thread that all of us are, are looking for. Uh, to carry us through this season, but beyond as well. We're living in very challenging times, and people have a heavy heart. Um, And to have a presentation that reminds us of the source of joy and to bring uh, laughter and a smile on our face and to see and hear music that is inspiring and uplifting, I think you're absolutely right. It appeals to everyone. And I think you walk away just a little bit different um, because you have been in your own community, surrounded by people who are having the same experience, being serenaded by your neighbors and family members and co-workers who have dedicated themselves to bringing that joy to you. It's just a wonderful experience that we want to invite every listener here today and beyond to join us for. Indeed. You know, and um, as I was looking at our ticket sales numbers uh, right before I came in, our matinees are filling up really fast. We still have some room in our evening shows but boy, I really want to have that house packed. I want anyone and everyone that can come and experience the show to really get a chance to be a part. You know, it's a great opportunity for families to come together. But I would also encourage you, if you have a lonely neighbor, maybe someone who's experienced a loss or is really struggling during this season, not everybody finds this season naturally uh, producing joy. This is an opportunity to introduce uh, joy into the lives and hearts of those you care about uh, and to invite them to join you for this presentation. Have a meal before, have a meal after, and just walk away with, uh, you know, with a bit of joy in your heart that you maybe didn't come in with. Again, we just want to encourage you to take advantage of the nine opportunities to be a part of this year's Singing Christmas Tree and not to be among those who say, oh, I missed it. <laughs> Again, we start on Saturday, December, or rather November 25th. Let me clarify that. Saturday, November 25th with a matinee performance at 2 and again at 6 o'clock p.m. Saturday, November the 25th. Keep in mind, those matinee performances, they're filling up very quickly. And then on Sunday, the 26th, uh, you have a matinee at 2 and an evening performance at 6. Then the following weekend, beginning on Friday, December 1st at 7 o'clock p.m. And again on the weekend, Saturday. Saturday and Sunday, December 2nd and 3rd, matinee performances at 2. And then on Saturday, December, uh, I mean, sorry, Sunday, December 3rd uh, and Saturday, December 2nd, you have uh, evening performances at 6 o'clock as well. To sort all of that out, you can go to the website singingchristmastree.org or you can call Patty in the box office at 503 
or excuse me, 557-8733. If you can sort through that, you're doing doing pretty well. Well, we're looking forward to coming together tonight and um, looking forward the most to welcoming uh, listeners from all over our community into this extravaganza where we we invite people to celebrate Christmas uh, with joy in our 61st year. Any final words? You know, it really is an extravaganza, so I I couldn't be more excited about it. Georgine, thank you for being a part of the show as our host, as a featured soloist. Um, Can't wait to see you there tonight. Well, I tell you what, it's just fascinating to be a part of that wonderful choir. You know, you're just kind of like the the, um, condiment. The choir is the the thing. Yes. (laughs) I tell you, they just... They're amazing. And then to have an opportunity to sing a little something with them is just a, a blessing that I think all of our listeners will enjoy. Well, Paul, thank you for your, your dedication to the choir, to our community. And we're looking forward to sharing all that we have in store for this year's 61st Portland Singing Christmas Tree. Thank you. Thank you. Again, call the box office at 503-557-8733. Get your tickets today. Hey, thank you so much for joining us. I do want to thank James Blend for producing, Dave King for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. I hope you'll join us here again tomorrow, and I hope to see you at this year's Portland Singing Christmas Tree. Good night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.